Good morning, everybody. I'm going to be reading today from 1 Samuel 12, so please join me. Samuel said to all Israel, I have listened to everything you said to me and have set a king over you. Now you have a king as your leader. As for me, I am old and grey, and my sons are here with you. I have been your leader from my youth until this day. Here I stand. Testify against me in the presence of the Lord and his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Whose donkey have I taken? Whom have I cheated? Whom have I oppressed? From whose hand have I accepted a bribe to make me shut my eyes? If I have done any of these things, I will make it right. You have not cheated or oppressed us, they replied. You have not taken anything from anyone's hand. Samuel said to them, The Lord is witness against you and also his anointed is witness this day that you have not found anything in my hand. He is witness, they said. Then Samuel said to the people, It is the Lord who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your ancestors up out of Egypt. Now then, stand here, because I am going to confront you with evidence before the Lord as to all the righteous acts performed by the Lord for you and your ancestors. After Jacob entered Egypt, they cried to the Lord for help. And the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, who brought your ancestors out of Egypt and settled them in this place. But they forgot the Lord their God, so he sold them into the hand of Sisera, the commander of the army of Hazor, and into the hands of the Philistines and the king of Moab who fought against them. They cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned, we have forsaken the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtoreths. But now deliver us from the hands of our enemies and we will serve you. Then the Lord sent Jerob Baal, Barak, Jephthah and Samuel, and he delivered you from the hands of your enemies all around you so that you lived in safety. But when they saw that Nahash, king of the Ammonites, was moving against you, you said to me, No, we want a king to rule over us, even though the Lord your God was your king. Now, here is the king you have chosen, the one you asked for. See, the Lord has set a king over you. If you fear the Lord and serve and obey him and do not rebel against his commands, and if both you and the king who reigns over you follow the Lord your God, good. But if you do not obey the Lord and if you rebel against his commands, his hand will be against you as it was against your ancestors. Now then, stand still and see this great thing the Lord is about to do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest now? I will call on the Lord to send thunder and rain, and you will realise what an evil thing you did in the eyes of the Lord when you asked for a king. Then Samuel called on the Lord, and that same day the Lord sent thunder and rain. So all the people stood in awe of the Lord and of Samuel. The people all said to Samuel, Pray to the Lord your God for your servants so that we will not die, for we have added to all our other sins the evil of asking for a king. Do not be afraid, Samuel replied. 
You have, have done all this evil, yet do not turn away from the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. Do not turn away after useless idols. They can do you no good, nor can they rescue you, because they are useless. For the sake of his great name, the Lord will not reject his people, because the Lord was pleased to make you his own. As for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by failing to pray for you, and I will teach you the way that is good and right. But be sure to fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. Consider what great things he has done for you. Yet, if you persist in doing evil, both you and your king will perish. I watched a few episodes of Lego Masters. How many people have actually seen this show? Quite a few. There was one person on this show that my kids wanted to get eliminated from pretty much the first episode that they saw. I didn't want him to get uh, eliminated because I found him so entertaining. He's hilarious. He's the guy on the right on the screen and uh, his name is Kale. And he seemed to have only one strategy And that one strategy was to go big every single time. All of his confidence was in this one strategy. Even though I'm not sure that it worked for him even once in the whole competition. He wouldn't listen to the judges. He wouldn't listen to his poor, faithful teammate. All the other contestants laughed at him. But even still, he kept defending the indefensible. Have a look. I've got a little bit of a clip that shows some of the things he did. The building we had before was big. Um, I want it to be bigger. It's gone mad crazy. Yeah. I don't know where to start. You've way overthought this. The brief was attack. You guys spent a fair bit of time adding another couple of stories. You were already the tallest building. You didn't need to go any higher. Simple solution. We're going huge. Today, we need something to really stand out. We are just going absolutely huge. I think the easiest way to do it is bigger. How big's huge? Huge? Wheel here, wheel there. Let's go huge, let's go bold, let's go as big as we can and just see where it lands. Is Kale scale like one to three? <laughs> Every, everything he builds is like one to three scale. <laughs> Dude, look at how big theirs is. It's getting annoying now where I can see we're not going to finish this. You're bad tunnel vision, man. I'm not about to regret the chance we took. I think it's still maintained it was the right call. I'm not for a second going to apologise for the risk we're taking here. There is no advantage to playing it safe in the competition. If we just want to play safe, we may as well give up and go home now. Nothing ventured, nothing gained. Whoa. If you had ten, to, if you had eighty hours, you still wouldn't have gotten close. I know that for a fact. Speaking as an artist, the moment really comes down to Jack and Rose. The hair, I love the hair. Titanic was never a movie about the Titanic. Titanic was a love story about Jack and Rose. The decision is made not to use minifigures because minifigures will get lost. You won't be able to see them or recognise them. I, I'd, I've never done anything by halves, and I'm not starting now. Except for half a DeLorean. 
Uh, now, that kind of bl- blindness is just fascinating to watch. It's mesmerizing. The producers, they would have been loving that guy. He was so blind to these massive, poor choices that he was making, even in the face of undeniable evidence. And he still was arguing that he'd done the right thing. I found myself wanting to be there for that moment when he finally realized the truth about himself, when he'd finally admit that he'd lost the competition because of foolish and selfish choices. But sadly, that moment never came. On the show, Kale, he just didn't seem to ever see the truth. Last week, we saw not an individual, but a whole nation make a terrible, foolish choice. And for them, there was a lot more on the line than $100,000 prize money and, and an audience at home judging them. Their very future was on the line. Their status as God's people was on the line. But today, we do get to see that moment that never came on Lego Masters. We see the moment where not just an individual but a whole nation finally sees the truth about themselves and what they've done. We get to see the moment where they realise they've been blind, where their eyes are opened to the massive poor choices that they've made when they actually give up trying to defend the indefensible. But as we'll see as we work through this, it takes some pretty extreme events to enable them to see the truth about themselves. And as usual, I don't think they're alone in this. I don't think that we're all that different to them. We're prone to make the the same kind of mistakes that they make and we're prone to, to have the same kind of inability to see our mistakes just like them. So at the end today, we're going to consider what we can learn from their story. So let's see how these events unfold that bring us to that moment when they finally realize what they've done. Like Craig said, last week we saw Israel ask for a king. And chapters, that was chapter 8, then chapters 9, 10 and 11 are the story of how God gives them the king that they asked for. He gave them Saul. Even Saul's name means asked for. He's the kind of king they want, the kind of king they ask for. And in chapter 11, he does exactly what they want him to do. They're being threatened by Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, who wants to gouge out the right eye of every Israelite, even if they surrender to him. And when Saul hears about it, God's spirit comes on him and he burns with anger and he steps up and he leads the people brilliantly in a great battle against the Ammonites and he liberates the nation from them. This is exactly what the people wanted, you might remember. A king who'd fight their battles for them. And as you can imagine, they are over the moon with Saul. And while they're feeling like this, Samuel says to them in chapter 11, verse 14, Come, let's go to Gilgal. Now, you probably don't remember Gilgal, but it's a very significant place in Israel's history. It's where they first camped when they first entered the Promised Land. It's where they set up a stone memorial with 12 stones, one for each of the tribes of Israel, taken from the bottom of the Jordan River that God had dried up, that they set up as a memorial to God. And so Samuel tells them why he wants them to go to this significant place. He says, let's go and there renew the kingship, which seems a bit strange, don't you reckon, since Saul's 
barely even begun to be king, why do they need to renew it? It makes you wonder what kingship that Samuel's talking about. And then we read in verse 15, So all the people went to Gilgal and made Saul king in the presence of the Lord. There they sacrificed fellowship offerings before the Lord, and Saul and all the Israelites held a great celebration. It's a little bit hard to figure out exactly what's going on here. It's a little bit strange, really, but it's about to get a whole lot stranger. In the midst of this great celebration, Samuel jumps up and he gives a speech that slowly starts to change the mood. To start with, it sounds like Samuel's praising their request for a king. He says, I've listened to everything that you said to me and I've set a king over you. Now you have a king as your leader. But then the speech starts to sound maybe like a bit of a swan song. You know, Maybe like this is Samuel's farewell speech. Even the heading in your Bible might make it sound like this. He says in verse 2, As for me, I'm old and grey and my sons are here with you. I've been your leader from my youth until this day. But then at this point, it starts to get a bit uncomfortable. Because rather than being a a kind of happy reflection on all his accomplishments and all the good times, rather than being a list of, of all his successful policies and his efforts to tackle climate change, and rather than him kind of graciously handing over the reins to Saul and the new kingship, instead Samuel becomes very serious. In fact, Samuel turns this party into a courtroom. First, he he puts himself on trial before Israel with God as their judge. And essentially he asks, has he ever been a leader that's used his power to exploit or oppress those that he's supposed to be serving? Now at this point, the people are probably thinking, this is exactly why I hate speeches at parties. But they all say no. Because Samuel's not that kind of leader at all. And everyone knows it. He's always been the best kind of leader. He's always been the kind of leader who uses his position to serve the people, unlike many kings who usually use their power to serve themselves. And as the speech continues, Samuel keeps pushing the point. In verse 5, he says, The Lord is witness against you, which sounds a bit ominous. And also, he's anointed his witness this day, that you've not found anything in my hand. Now, at this point in the speech, they start to realise that he's going somewhere that's a little bit awkward. As they're admitting that Samuel is one of those rare leaders who's been exemplary, they're admitting something about themselves. They're admitting something about their own choices and what they've done. But Samuel's just getting started. He keeps charging on, turning this party into a courtroom. And now he, he, he himself steps out of the dock and he says to them, okay, so if I'm innocent, that means now it's your turn. Look at verse 7. He says, now then, stand here because I'm going to confront you with evidence before the Lord as to all the righteous acts performed by the Lord for you and your ancestors. God still judge. But now Samuel's mounting a case against the people. They're the ones in the docks. And the first part of his case is that God has always done the right thing by his people. God has always acted righteously. 
Samuel recounts how God had rescued their ancestors from Egypt, how he'd raised up the exact leaders that they needed, and how he'd brought them to the very place where they're standing right now, Gilgal. Samuel can point to that pile of rocks there at Gilgal that Joshua had set up centuries earlier. And Joshua had said that they'd been set up, God had told Joshua to set them up, so that the people might know that the hand of the Lord is powerful. And so that they might always fear the Lord, their God. That's why they were there. And then Samuel recounts the events of the book of Judges, which we saw a few weeks ago. He retells how time and time again the people forgot God, but how God at those points had handed them over to their enemies. But when they admitted their sin, when they cried out to God to deliver them, every time God had always done it, right down to most recently with Samuel and the Philistines in chapter 7. Every page of their history showed that God had always done the right thing by them. God had never let them down, not even once. And the things that had ever gone bad for them were only because they had forgotten the Lord. Now, I imagine that the party probably felt pretty ruined already at this point. Samuel's been a bit of a killjoy, and I don't imagine many of them were expecting him to turn this speech around with a few jokes. But actually what we've seen so far has just been Samuel setting the scene for what he's really, where he's really going with all of this. We see his real charge against the people in verse 12. He says, But when you saw that Nahash, king of the Ammonites, was moving against you, you said to me, what would you expect them to say based on what they'd said in the past? You'd expect them to cry out to God. You'd expect them to admit that they'd sinned against God. You'd expect them to ask God to deliver them. But what do they actually do? They say to Samuel, no, we want a king to rule over us. And they did this, Samuel says, even though the Lord your God was your king. The point that Samuel has been getting to in this speech is that God's people do an evil thing when they trust in human power over God. Looking to human means as the answer and not looking to God is really wrong. These people, they haven't just repeated the mistakes of the past. They've added to these mistakes something new, something even worse. In the past, they realized their mistake and they cried out to God. But this time, they don't cry out to God. Even there, standing there at Gilgal, in front of that pile of rocks, which was to remind them of God's power, what are they doing? They're putting their hope in human power rather than in him. So look at what Samuel does in verse 13. He has a bit of an all-ages spot of his own in his speech. He, he says, now, here is the king that you've chosen, the one you asked for. See, the Lord has set a king over you. Now, Samuel doesn't get Dave Harrington or Chris Castellin or Craig or Pierre or Porker up the front to stand with him. He gets King Saul to stand up there with him. And Samuel points to Saul and it's like he's saying, See, here's what you've put your trust in. And what are they all thinking at that point? I wonder if at that point they still don't really see what the problem is. I wonder if they're thinking, 
yeah, we've, we've put our trust in a human king. And it makes sense. Look at Saul. He's handsome. He's strong. He's young. He's a head taller than everyone else in Israel. He's someone that people will follow. He's who we asked for. He's just smashed Nahash. You can't argue with results. And look at you, Samuel. Old, grey, past it. It's time, Samuel, to renew the kingdom like you said. It's time to clear out the old and to bring in the new. But that's not at all what Samuel has in mind when he says, let's renew the kingdom. When he says, let's renew the kingship. And to help them see why they desperately need renewal, at this point, his all-ages spot takes a very memorable turn. Look at what he says in verse 16. Now then, stand still and see this great thing the Lord is about to do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest now? It's the dry season for them, where it's unheard of that it, that it would rain. But Samuel says, I will call on the Lord to send thunder and rain, and you will realize what an evil thing you did in the eyes of the Lord when you asked for a king. Now, do you remember that God had thundered against Sisera back in the book of Judges and saved his people and, and defeated Sisera? Or more recently, do you remember how God had thundered against the Philistines, destroyed them and saved his people? But now he's on the brink of thundering against his own people. And with the wind whipping against them and the rain pelting them in the face and with the the thunder and lightning crashing down all around them and with their king, the one they asked for, falling to the ground with them, wet, shivering, muddy, terrified, powerless in the face of the storm, it opens their eyes to what they've done. They thought human power could help them more than God's power. But what can Saul do for them now? As strong and and as tall as Saul is, what a joke that the people would have put their trust in him. What does being a head taller than everyone else do for him right now? He's more likely to get hit by lightning in a thunderstorm. That's about it. What kind of stupidity is this? What kind of blindness? What kind of evil has possessed them to think that what they need is human means, human power to give them safety, security, happiness? Who would you rather march into battle with? Saul or God? That's what God's doing. That's what he's showing them. No matter how impressive your your king is, He's got nothing on God. They've gone mad and they've brought the future of their nation to the very brink of destruction. And now, finally, in this desperate moment, they see it. Look at what they say to Samuel in verse 19. Pray to the Lord, your God. See, notice they don't say our God here. They finally see just how bad their rejection of God really is. They say, pray to the Lord, your God. For your servants, so that we will not die. For we've added to all our sins the evil of asking for a king. Here's the moment. Here's the moment where a nation's eyes are opened to see what they've really done. They see their sin now. They've rejected God. And they don't even deserve to be called his people. 
But look at what Samuel says to them in verse 20. Don't be afraid. Now you've got to wonder, how on earth can he say that? On what possible basis can they give up fear? Only on one basis. He tells them down the bottom there in verse 22. For the sake of his great name. For the sake of his great name, the Lord will not reject his people. Because the Lord was pleased to make you his own. Samuel reassures them that God will not reject his people when they fear him. God will not forsake them when they turn to him because that's not the kind of God that he is. When they fear God, they need not fear anything else because God is righteous. That's the kind of God he is. He's always been righteous. He always will be righteous. And he's promised them with an unbreakable covenant that if they fear him, he'll be their God, their true king. And this, this is the renewal of the kingship that Samuel's talking about. It's not out with the old and in with the new. It's the new coming under the authority of the Lord, the true king. Now, I reckon this would have been a pretty memorable party and a pretty memorable speech. Samuel has metaphorically and, and literally rained on the party. It was a bit of a disaster. For some reason, it makes me think of some weddings I've been to. But actually, it's, it's not Samuel raining on the party, is it? It's God. And actually, it's not God bringing disaster. It's God bringing his people back from the brink of disaster. He terrifies them with the storm, but make no mistake, it, this is an act of mercy. He pulls them back from the brink. They're like drunk partiers taking a late night walk on the edge of a cliff without even realizing it. And God, through Samuel, sobers them up so that they can look down at the chasm that they're teetering on the edge of. God is not the kind of God who gives up on his people, even though they're clearly the kind of people who give up on their God. This is the renewal of the kingship that God has in mind. It's saving his people. It's bringing them back and bringing their king back under his kingship. And that's where chapter 12 ends. It ends with the people standing in awe of the Lord and in awe of Samuel, God's prophet. It ends with the challenge to trust in God alone and not to trust in useless things. Now, I said at the beginning that we're not that different to the people back then in many ways. Isn't it true that we're prone to put our trust in, in human strength in a, in a way that pushes God aside? And isn't it true that like them, when we're doing that, when we're trusting in human strength, at those times we struggle to see why it's a problem? The charge against them was that they were trusting in God's power instead of trusting in, sorry, trusting in human power instead of trusting in God's power. And God sees that as a blatant rejection of him, as an evil thing. Now, there's a serious warning to us here, but there's also an encouragement to us. We're people who've put our trust in Jesus, or most of us here are those sort of people. We've put our confidence in Jesus as God's chosen king, which means we look to his strength and his power as the answer to all of life's problems. 
And we no longer hold any confidence in human strength and, and human power independent of God as being of any use to us. And we do that for good reason. You know, in a single moment, all of the strength of, of humans can come crashing down around us. And we can realize just how foolish we've been to trust in, in human means, human strength, human power over God. I mean, one minute you can be sitting in a doctor's surgery, healthy, happy, confident, rich. The next you can suddenly realize just how powerless these things are in the face of cancer or MS or motor neuron disease. One minute you can be in your office at work, on the top of your game, in charge, confident. The next, you can see just how powerless these things are in the face of unemployment, redundancy, or burnout and breakdown. One minute, you can be secure in a loving family, confident. The next, you can see just how powerless these things really are in the face of loss or death or divorce. Who do you want to charge into the battles of life with? The means of human power? Money, education, intelligence, good health, networks, strong relationships, even religious pedigree, morals, ethics. See, you hold these up next to God. And unless he's behind them, they're weak and powerless. They're like Saul, wet, muddy, stooped and useless. They don't have the power that we need. The best of human strengths. It's nothing compared to God. Now, God can use money. He can use health. He can use doctors. He can use education. Human means and ability and, and our human actions, they're not the problem. It's thinking that they're the answer. That's the problem. Rather than knowing that God is the answer. Who do you want to go into battle in life with? Saul or God? Money and human means or God. See, I would only want to go into battle if I was them with Saul, if I knew that God was coming too. And I only want to go into battle in life if God is with me, if God is using my money, my human means, or whatever he chooses. I trust in him, not in those other things. I've got zero confidence in the others, or at least that's what I ask God to help me, help me with. The warning in this passage is that we should be careful not to put our confidence in human means to get what we think we need. And we should be careful not to deceive ourselves. But the encouragement is that if we're trusting in Jesus, we've made the right decision. No matter how foolish Jesus looks to others, we know the truth. I mean, hold up the alternatives next to God, next to Jesus. They've got nothing on him. No matter how good they look, they're weak and powerless and useless to us in the end. But God is not. God is righteous. God is powerful. Jesus is really all we need. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus, for the kind of king he is that he clearly is powerful and loving and kind. Father, help us not to swallow the lies of this world 
the lies of our heart even that would tell us that what we need with our problems is the things that we can get our hands on the things that we can grasp the things that we can control father help us to see that you alone are the answer to every problem that we could ever face father help us to trust your power and we ask this in jesus name amen